Good morning, Liberty Lake Church. Beautiful day. A great day to worship. Please stand and worship with us. Good morning. All right, I think I'm back. All right, just a, um, a few things this morning. Nice to see everybody. It looks like the sunshine is distracting some folks, huh? Uh, the EFCA uh, District Conference is here this weekend, uh, May 6th through the 8th. And volunteers are still needed. There is a sign-up sheet out in the foyer, so if you're able to give uh, any time to help out with that, that would be good. Ladies' Fellowship Night, Monday, May 10th.
Now, this says ladies, but guys, I want you to hear this. They are doing chocolate fondue. Now, this sounds like a co-ed thing to me. It says, bring what you like to dip in chocolate. Bring extra to share. Um, guys, I'd figure out how to make it to this, but they might throw you out, but you might get some chocolate on the way. It says, grab a postcard in the foyer for more information. Monday, May 10th at 6.30. And then uh, our men's breakfast, which is almost, is normally on the second Saturday, has been moved this month because of the district conference next weekend. So it will be on Saturday, May 15th at 8 o'clock. And uh, as always, if you are able to help out with cooking or um, supervising or, you know, whatever, come a little early. Come around 7.30 and you can uh, get put to work. All right, let's worship.
a little different passage this morning than what we normally do for communion. Uh, part of it's just where I've been at in uh, this last week in trying to prepare the sermon and worshiping uh, God and, and, and getting a glimpse of who He is. And so um, I want to read out of Philippians chapter 2 this morning. Uh, so I'll give you a second to turn in your Bibles there. Philippians chapter 2, and we're going to be, read verses 1 through 10. And then after we get our stuff, I'll do the traditional uh, passage out of 1 Corinthians. But I just wanted to set the tone this morning again as we think about taking communion and what it is we're doing. Philippians 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. As we take communion this morning, I want us to remember who it is that we're celebrating, what we're celebrating. That Jesus Christ, although he was in the form of God and equal to God and, and is God, he was sent by his Father to take on the human form of a servant and to die on a cross, humbly dying for the sins of those who did not want it, who were in, uh, at the time enemies to him and rebellious in nature. And that's what Christ died, the conditions that Christ died in for you and for me. So when we take communion, as often as we do it, uh, once a month, it's, it's an important remembrance. It's something important for us to recognize what we're doing and why we're doing it. And so as we take, and as you go back to your seats this, this morning, I want to encourage you to reflect on who Christ is and what he did in, in that moment on the cross for you and for me. And hopefully later in our time in the Word together, we're going to wrestle with the, the, how grand he is today, having a name that is like no other name, above every other name, and uh, that every knee should bow to worship, every knee will bow to worship. So as we take, uh, uh, like normal, if you would come up and grab uh, your items and then go sit back down and we'll all get up and we'll take together this morning. So
1 Corinthians 11, Paul recalls the conversation he had with the Lord. He says in verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take together. continues in verse 25 it says in the same way also he took the cup after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup you proclaim the lord's death until he comes let's take it together heavenly father lord we want to thank you and praise you for the free gift that is offered in the blood, the new covenant in Christ's blood, that we who are wretched and in desperate need of a Savior have been offered redemption by the one true Creator God who, knowing all things, created us and still brought forth a plan, Lord, that restored broken people to a loving Creator God. So, Lord, we thank you for that. We want to be in awe of that even this morning. Father, I pray as we consider the reality of, of your Son, who was guiltless, had no sin, and yet paid the price for mine. I pray, Lord, that that reality would weigh heavily and, and rightly on our hearts this morning as we exalt and worship you in song and in study of your word in your name. Amen. All right, let's continue to worship. I come to Thank you. 
Jesus, we just pray. We want to know you more. Please reveal yourself more and more to us. And just bless this day, bless the sermon, and speak through Shane today. In Jesus' name. Kids, you are dismissed to Kids Rock. So one of the things that you get the privilege of doing if you preach from time to time is have opportunities for illustrations that you're just not quite sure how to use. And I have one today. Anybody reading ahead at all? One of, one of our, had somebody tell me that they were reading ahead and they were like, I was kind of excited about what was coming. Um, one of the issues that the uh, Israelites had, the Jews had, is that they they had idols, and they had they would take wood and they would carve them into an into an idol, and they would worship something similar, not like this. This is probably modeled after I don't know what what are the islands, Easter Islands. I think it's modeled after that, and uh, no idea. I'm going to ask him, it, whatever it is, anyway. Have you ever thought about why we worship idols? Why are we so idolatrous in our nation, in, in our nature? I was going to do something else I thought this morning that would be really fun, and uh, I want you to just to, just to calm down, we take a deep breath, and uh, thinking about church, not, not the world. I mean, we could all come up with the idols of the world. That's super easy. But what's, what are some issues of idolatry within the church? Music? Okay. Coffee? Ooh, now you're hitting close to home. Program. Yeah, who the preacher... Hey, you know, Jerry, you're not wrong. Who the preacher is. Who's, who's the big mouth behind the mic? Theology. Ah, uh, yeah, cause it, that, could that be an idolatry? An idol? The altar? The imagery? Sure. Food? Seems to be a theme for you. <laughs> I love it. It's true, though. What about appearances? What about how the place looks? The worship of anything but God, absolutely, absolutely. The, the problem is, is, is greed an issue in the church? Okay, Is selfishness an issue in the church? When you start thinking about what the idols of the world are, we are equally susceptible to them. We just package them more lovely. We polish them up a little bit better so that they don't look quite as bad as what the worlds are. But when you really look at what idolatry is, it comes down to an issue of the heart. It comes down to an issue of we're worshiping something else that the Creator made. In fact, one of the challenges as we've been wrestling with this is I, I really do think that the reason idolatry is such a, a, a huge issue or idol worship in 
the people of God is because we're trying to describe, we're trying to put uh, understanding and, and put into our minds this God that we're worshiping. And because God is outside of our comprehension, we tend to bring him down or we tend to try and, and control or, or define things in a, in a way that we can understand them. Right? Things that we don't understand can really drive us crazy, right? How somebody else is driving. Think about this, though. You, you got, you've got somebody else in a car doing life at a totally different pace, having all kinds of issues. Could be a, the, lost a loved one. Could be a job issue. Could be a kid issue. We, you have no idea what's happening in that vehicle. Anybody ever dro- drove in, uh, been out driving distraught because of life? Worried about family? I mean, think about what could potentially be going on in another car. I mean, we have all of these things that are happening around us, and when we don't understand the, 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 what's happening, when we don't understand what's out there, it can be very confusing and be very, very frustrated. Marriage? Right? Some of our greatest fights are with our spouses because we don't understand. We're not, com- we're not communicating well. And, and so those things are, are I think they're part, they play part of what is happening with the heart of the nation of Israel uh, with, with Judah at this time. And what I love about this particular text is that we actually get a, we get a glimpse into Jeremiah's worship of God. God's expressing his, his uh, discontent and the, the failure of the nation of Israel to constantly be going after carved images. And in that, Jeremiah responds to God in an incredible way. Um, join me in chapter 10. Uh, I, you guys are like, wow, you've been, when did we do chapter 7, 8, and 9? Now, I, what I want to share with you is that if you jump in and look at chapter 7, 8, and 9, uh, actually the end of chapter uh, 3, the first part of 4, I'm, I'm pretty sure, pretty solid on this, that that ends Josiah's reign. That's at the end of Josiah's reign, and the nation of Israel starts going backwards. And Jehoiakim is now king uh, because of the Assyrian king and, and the Babylonian king coming in, and they're replacing people and moving them around. And one of Josiah's sons, I think he was in for like three months, he gets taken out, and Jehoiakim gets put in, and, and he's actually renamed. If you go back and read the text in Second, uh, Second Chronicles, they actually walk you through this process of what's happening. But Jehoiakim Kim is the king right now of Israel during what we're reading in chapter 7, 8, 9, and, and into 10. And hopefully we'll, we'll have some cues when we switch into Hezekiah, because it gets even... Um, it gets it continues to be a problem, but this nation has gone from the the f- faithful worship of Josiah the king and him turning the nation away from idolatry and turning them back to the Lord. And now that he's gone, the nation is has fallen full swing back into the worship of idols, back into its pagan practices, and that's where jo- uh, Jeremiah picks up in chapter seven, eight, and nine. And uh, can you guys guess what he's saying? Well, it's what he said in chapters 1 and 2 as well. It's that you are idolaters, and you continue to be idolaters, and I want you to repent, and you won't, so there's horrible punishment coming. Disaster is coming. As I was reading through all of that, and I was wrestling with that text, I hit chapter 10, and I realized that one of the great problems that we have in, in our worship of God uh, is this idea of intimacy and knowledge and, and how do we get to that relational part and not be religious? 
And uh, you'll notice I haven't even started in my notes yet because this has been a really rough week trying to get my head around all this. So this may be just part one of chapter 10 times whatever it is. But it's an incredible wrestling that we have to deal with in this process of what it means to worship God in this setting. Look at chapter 10. We're going to start with uh, verses 6 through 7 this morning. I want you to see Jeremiah's expression of God, and then we're going to go back and pick up other pieces throughout Jeremiah to, to watch this interaction and this conversation happen. But Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 6 says this, There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? For this is your due. For among all the wise ones of the nations and all their kingdoms, there is none like you. Jeremiah expresses his view of God, his, his, what he sees to be God and his relationship with him. And from what he can see of God, he goes, who would not fear you? I love that. Can I just tell you I love that? Because I don't know how many of you have ever heard in our American Christian church that we shouldn't fear the Lord, right? Well, we don't say it that way. Sorry, I said it the wrong way. It's, it's a reverent respect because we have nothing to fear anymore, right? That's true. We don't have anything to fear. But if the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord, shouldn't we want some of that? What if, what if the intimacy with God, what if, what if the confidence and the boldness to come before the throne of God is weighed equally with our understanding of who he is and there's, some, there's this tension for the believer of, of deep and, and uh, awe-filled, notice how I said that, not awful, awe-filled fear of a holy creator God. And in that tension, we boldly, be, we boldly come to the throne on the grace of Christ. What if that's actually of the posture of worship that we're supposed to take? Do you see what Jeremiah says? He says, you are great, and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you? O king of the nation, for this is your due. For among all the wise ones of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. He's going to say more, and we're going to look into that even more. But one of Jeremiah's first cautions to Israel, and I, I think it's incredible, and we need, to, we need to make sure that we look at this, is that we should not be dismayed. Uh, verses 1 and 2 in Jeremiah, uh, he actually tells them, do not be dismayed by the nations and do not follow their customs. The nation of Israel's practice was to follow the, the customs of those around them, to, to actually pick up their their patterns. Uh, think about that in our current church model. Do we ever do we follow the world's patterns in how we do church? Do we see this as a corporate organization with a with a CEO, officers, and then peons? Oh, sorry, we call them laymen. Isn't that a horrible? I, I to me, that's a horrible term. Because the church of God is not a corporate model. It's not a corporate business. It's the body of Christ. Right? I mean, what we see in Scripture is that you are equally 
your equal access to the Lord as I am. You can go into the throne room like I can. Pastor title does not give me access to, Je- to Jesus or to God that you don't already have. There's not, it's not a corporate model of business, and yet so many churches run that way. Where else do we follow the world? Our pursuit of greed? Money? Maybe? Just a little bit? Pursuit of comfort? How many like being comfortable? Yeah, isn't that great? Don't do yard work. Simple, simple solution. How many of us, how many of us don't like looking like idiots? We, we want to look like we've got all of our stuff together. We want to look like our lives aren't broken. At some level, I think even as a church, we get to the point where we want to look like we don't need a Savior. I've got my sin stuff figured out. I've got life figured out. Life's good. I think in the world of idolatry, we tend to become very similar to the world around us, and we pick up some of their patterns and some of their traits. Unfortunately, I think that we see it in the church, and I want to be very careful with this because it's not my job to condemn other people or other other people's views in, in ministry, but I think for us we need to really have a clear mind of what we're doing. But when Christianity starts becoming about our comfort, when, when, Christian, when we start changing Scripture to say that, that Jesus wants me to be comfortable, wants me to be happy, I believe he does want us to be happy, but he's promised happiness and joy eternally, not always temporally, not always here. I mean, was Paul happy all the time? Joyful. Yeah, joy. Jeremiah happy all the time? We're gonna, I'm going to show you a verse. It's really cool. It's so cool. It's such an amazing truth that's happening in this text. Jeremiah wasn't happy all the time. I think one of the biggest ones that I wrestle with and I think we, we should wrestle with as a church is, do we fear our culture? Are we dismayed by them? By their hostility to the gospel? By their hostility to the truths of God's word? Are we dismayed by them? One of the things that we see uh, at this time uh, in, in verses 1 and 2 is that they're actually they're, they're in awe of the heavens, the, the constellations and the things. Part of, part of their major worship was, was the shooting stars and the, 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 the stars, the heavenly constellations, things that were happening in that, uh, um, eclipses and all that kind of stuff. That, they were looking at that going, wow, and they would be, the, the worship was of those things, not the one that created them. Not of the Creator God, but of the events that were happening around them. I realized at some point, I'm being cautious with some of what I'm saying, because it is not my intent to offend anyone. But I have good friends that value science pretty highly. And I love, I love information. No, I don't. I love some information. Gotta be careful. I said, I love some information, but there are movements in our church that put science over the authority of God's word. 
God's word says this, but science has now said this, so therefore God's word must be wrong. Brothers, just we have to make a decision on that. In our own hearts, we got to decide where the authority is and who we're going to worship and who we're going to live in light of. And I, I love how uh, Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 10, verse 26. Matthew chapter 10, verse 26 says this, So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are more valuable than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. When we think about the nation of Israel being dismayed by these things or worshiping other things, Jesus specifically tells his disciples, don't be afraid of men. Don't be afraid of the threats that are coming. Don't be afraid of being gospel lights and being who I've called you to be. He actually says in that, rather fear God. Don't, don't fear them. Don't change your behavior based on them. Live based on your knowledge of who God is. The one who can destroy both soul and body. And then he describes this relationship between God the Father and a sparrow. You guys ever seen the sparrows flying? Not one falls to the ground outside of the Father's knowledge. Not one. And then he references hair. Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 3. He begins to describe the idolatry of the nation. Jeremiah chapter 1, or 10, verse 3. It says, For the customs of the people are vanity. A tree from the forest was cut down and worked with an axe by the hands of a craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammers and nails so that it cannot move. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field, and they cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, neither is it in them to do good. Did you see the idols that, that he's expressing in there? What, they, 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 cannot, uh, they cannot move. They cannot speak. They cannot walk. They cannot do evil, and it's not within them to do good. And yet the people of Israel were fearing them. Wow. Scary. It's a heart issue, right? I love this. Uh, Alan Ulmer gave this to me. And uh, not gave it to me. He's let me borrow it. It's a yard ornament for him. And uh, he picked it up out of somebody else's yard. They were going to throw it away. And he's like, oh, I love this. And you know Alan. If you know Alan, he's a carpenter, and he loves craftsmanship. And so this thing, he thought it was pretty cool. He painted up the eyes for us and the, and the head, you know, the, the blue on there, so it would kind of pop, and it would look more than just really blah this morning. But these are the kind of things. I mean, I'm sure that some of the gold and all the stuff that they attached to him made him look even more 
dazzling. And yet this is ultimately what they're worshiping. An empty, false god. Verse 8 and 9 of chapter 10, he continues. They are both stupid and foolish. The instruction of idols is but wood. Beaten silver is brought from Tarshish and gold from Euphaz. They are the work of the craftsman and of the hand of the goldsmith. Their clothing is violet and purple. They are all the work of skilled men. The Lord says that the idolatry of these people, they're worshiping merely the craftsmanship of men. I was wrestling in in my own head thinking, what craftsmanship of men do I worship? All right, I'm going to be less nice. If we can be that honest, let's go. It's a big issue. It's a big issue. I love cars. I love hot rods. Met with a young man, one of our new neighbors, super excited. He's a car guy. I'm down at his house, and we're ta- he takes me in to show me his hot rod truck that he's building. It is so cool. And he has spent tons of money and gobs of hours. That's a, that's a technical term, gobs. Of hours building this truck. As I look at these things, as I look at things that are made by men that are tempted, tempting for me to worship, tempting for me to focus my time and energy on, I have to actually ask the question, is that an issue for me? What is it that you're wrestling with? Not funny. I, it's way easier for me to see everybody else's problems. Way easier. In fact, I saw a guy today, he was clearly a sinner. He was driving a Corvette right behind me. Had to be in a similar condition of my life situation. Not much hair on top, long gray beard. Obviously, he was a sinner. Who else drives a hot rod on Sunday morning? I know, right? The point is, when we start looking at idolatry and the personal nature of it, it just seems ridiculous. Why are we worshiping these things? Why is it so important to us? Jeremiah continues in 10, chapter 10, verse 12 uh, through 16. He says this, and and it's it's amazing because he's contrasting Um, God and men in this dialogue right here. And he says, It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom, and by his understanding stretched out the heavens. When he uttered his voice, there is a tumult of water in the heavens, and he makes the mist rise from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain, and he brings forth wind from his storehouses. Every man is stupid and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols. For his images are false, and there is no breath in them. They are worthless, a work of delusion. At the time of their punishment, they shall perish. Not like, the, the, uh, not like these is he who is the portion of Jacob, 
For he is the one who formed all things, and Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. The Lord of hosts is his name. You see the contrast between the, 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 the items of worship, the, the images, the idolatry of the nation of Israel. They were worshiping wooden items. They had no breath. They had no life. There was, there was nothing about them that could compare to God. And Jeremiah seems to understand that, and he expresses this. Did you see what he said about him? He has lightning for the rain. By his understanding, he stretched out the heavens. He brings forth wind from his storehouses. God is in control of the physical nature, the, the things that, some of the things that they were worshiping in that time, the, the, the constellations and the movement of, of stars and, and, and all of those things that they were looking at, enamored by. And it was God the Father who was directing those things, and yet they would not worship Him, though they knew His name, and though He called them to be His own. They would not worship Him. And I love the contrast in this, right? Jeremiah worships God, and you see him worshiping God in this process. Uh, Turn to Psalm 86. We're going to look at a couple other passages as we think about this idea of worshiping God. And one of the things that I'm wrestling with, this is what I've been wrestling with all, all like late into last night and this morning, is how do you describe God? How do we, how do we wrestle with who He is and, and, and getting a vision of Him to worship, right? Because we tend to be visual. We like to worship things that are, that are present, you know, things that we can touch or things that we can experience. And when you think about what was a moment in your life where you saw God work or you saw something that, that brought an awe to your life. In, in my life, I was thinking through different, different scenarios of you know, my children being born or, or the, uh, you know, some of the great landscapes I've had the privilege of, of looking at. I told you the story of climbing up the Multnomah Falls and stand, you know, sliding over the edge and opening my eyes and going, wow, that's amazing. And yet scripture says that everything that we see here is a veiled, it's a, it's a poorly lit or a dimly lit shadow of the things to come. And so how do you describe seeing God, having an experience with God that is true, that is accurate, that is real? And, and yet we have him. And he, and he, he says that, in, Christ says that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The disciples are like, huh? And then he goes, you go and be me to the world. So I guess in one sense, if you look to your left and you look to your right, you'll see Jesus. Is that a little terrifying? We're supposed to be the representation of a God? The creator God? What I'm wrestling with is, do I even know him? I mean, yeah, I know of him. But do I know him like Jeremiah is talking about? Do I know him as that there's no one like you? Do I know him like David speaks of him in Psalm 86? Starting in verse 5, he says this, For you, O Lord, are a good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon your name. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble, I called upon you, for you answer me. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. 
All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name, for you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. I love what he says here. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me, and you have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. One of the things that we see in King David is that he met God in a great point of despair in his life. He experienced some great difficulties, great points of suffering. Early in his life and even late in his life, some of the the consequences of his sin brought very, very painful consequences to his life. But yet in that moment, you see in his writing this intimacy with God, this deep knowledge and trust in the Lord. Is that me? Do I know God that way? Do you know God that way? My fear is that I've been raised in the church in a comfortable Christian life. So my understanding of God is very soft. What are some of the big, deep, meaningful, painful things I've had to trust Him with this week? Landscaping. Terrible day. That's not suffering. That's that's not difficult stuff like what we're going to see Job goes through. Do I know him? You guys know Job's story. The super righteous man. Satan, and I, again, I don't have an answer to this. Satan's up in, in a council meeting with God and the angels, and the Lord says to Satan, Hey, have you noticed my righteous servant, Job? I don't want to be noticed, just so you know. Don't notice me. He says, Have you noticed my righteous servant, Job? Satan goes, Well, yeah, who wouldn't be righteous with you protecting him? And he lifts his hand of protection. And for 37 chapters, you can read the interaction between Job and his friends about the suffering that Job was going through. Physical. Emotional. Probably even some spiritual questions. Job makes his answer and he makes his defense about his righteousness and, and how he hasn't sinned and he's, he's not He's not what his friends are saying. And in chapter 38, God responds. Look at what he says. And the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Wouldn't that be a great response? You want, you want, you want to hear that from the Lord, right? Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? We put that on the greeting on your phone. That would be, just be awesome. That's his response to Job. Job's suffering. Job's been experiencing great suffering. God says, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you. You make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? 
Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out of the womb? When I made cloud, clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far you shall come and no farther. And here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal, and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked their light is withheld, and their uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea, or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you, or have you seen the gates of of the deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. And he continues. Remember Jeremiah's question? Who, who would not fear the Lord? You see what Jeremiah or God's saying to Job here? He goes, where were you when I did all this? Speak up. Where were you when God set all of this stuff in motion? Where were you when God set the boundaries on these things? Where were, where were we when God was doing all those, th- all those things? Who would not fear this God? Who would not fear the Lord? The Lord continues, but only after a brief response from Job. Job 40, verse 3. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth, and I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice. But I will proceed no farther. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Put out the overflowing of your anger. Pour out the overflowing of your anger. And look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low. And tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then I will also acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. God looks at Job and he begins to describe who he is and the, 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 the reality of, of this almighty, all-powerful, all-knowing God. And he says, do all these things, and then I'll acknowledge that your right hand could save you, that you're capable of saving yourself. And this is probably one of my favorite passages in Scripture. It's Job 42, because Job responds to all of this stuff, and there's more. There's Leviathan. I love the story of the Leviathan. Take a hold of him. God says, go ahead, take a hold of him. Try and put 
put a, 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 a rope or a chain on him and control him. You'll not forget the fight. I love that. But in 42, Job responds, and Job says this, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered and what I did not understand. Uh, therefore I, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Here's Job, referenced as a righteous servant of the Lord in the heavenly counsel of God. And when he experiences a personal relationship, a personal face-to-face encounter with God, he comes away and he says that he's undone. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Part of what I'm wrestling with is I feel like, as a believer, my ears have heard of the Lord. I've spent most of my life, more than, more than half of my life, studying Scripture and telling people about it. Yay! But do I know Him? Do I fear Him? Do I worship Him? Or do I have man-made idols that take more value, and take prominence in my life over him. Jeremiah's response, I think, is absolutely perfect, and it's amazing. And it's the challenge that I want to leave you with today. Jeremiah, in in chapter 10 of uh, verse 19, Jeremiah says this, Woe is me because of my hurt. My wound is grievous. But I said, truly, this is an affliction, and I must bear it. You see that response? Shh. Oh, my battery's low. (laughs) Do you see his response? He's grieving because of the condition of Israel, uh, of Judah. He's in great torment because of what what he sees God doing, what's coming on the nation. He's watching the nation of Judah walk away from a good king and begin to follow after the, 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 the traditions and the gods of other nations, and he knows that the consequences of that is going to be terrible. But his response to that is not despair, although it is a great affliction. It is, I think it's greatly painful for him. He talks about how his heart's grieving in, our, in um, chapter, chapter 6. His heart's grieving. It's, it's, it's a heavy weight. And yet he says, but I must bear it. There's this faithfulness and there's this surrender where Jeremiah submits to God's plan and he recognizes that it's this God, this wonderful, amazing, all-knowing, all-powerful God who is asking the question, who would not fear you, that the proper worship of him requires him to faithfully serve where he's been called and to continue to trust. And I love he continues on with that idea and I think he asks, he has this amazing prayer at the end of Jeremiah chapter, 20, uh, chapter 10. In verses 23 and 24, I know, O Lord, that the way of man is not in himself, that it is not in man who walks to direct his steps. 
Correct me, O Lord, but in justice, not in anger, not in your anger, lest you bring me to nothing. Jeremiah recognizes that because of who God is, he's not in charge of his days, of his life, of his steps. He submits to God's authority and God's plan in his life and says, I'm not my own. I belong to you. You are the creator, and I belong to you, and you can do with me as you see fit. Then he asks him to correct him. Why do you think Jeremiah needed help with correction? He just gave us this great worship picture of who God is and how he sees God. What do you think he needs help with? Probably an attitude problem. I'll bet you he doesn't like where he's at. He probably doesn't like being stuck with the the nation of Judah. And he's stuck. We're going to see in other parts of the text, he's stuck with them. Like he can't get away from them. He can see what's coming and he can't get out of the way. Anybody want to volunteer for Christian service in that department? That's horrible. And yet that's what Jeremiah, that's the call that God put on his life. Remember chapter 1? God told him this is what's coming. This is what you're going to do. I've made you for this purpose. And he says, "Uh, find someone else, Lord. I'm too young. There's a little irony in that when you've been telling him that for most of your life, and there's a point at which he goes, no, you're not anymore. But it reminds me of King David's Psalm 139. Uh, The very end of that, verses 23 and 24, it says this, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. I want us to close with that thought in, in, in our hearts and our minds with that prayer that we, like Jeremiah, although I don't believe that we are in the same kind of difficult situation of suffering, um, I, th- I think we can look at our culture, we can see that, that we're not, that, that as, a, as a nation, it's becoming more and more hostile towards Christian values. And there's potential for, uh, for more and more difficulty for us as, as we stand on the truth and as we faithfully share the gospel and, and, and we stand for Christ, that there's potential for more and more difficulty for us. Um, I mean, there's believers all around the world who die for their faith every day. And we haven't suffered like that. We don't experience that kind of suffering. But just like Jeremiah is doing in, in the midst of, of his life, and, and as King David does, I think it's very wise and it's a very appropriate place for us to stop and recognize that, that maybe we don't see God quite the same way Job does. Maybe we don't see God quite the same way David or, or Jeremiah does yet at this point in our life. Maybe the suffering we've gone through, our relationship with Him, it's just not as deep as theirs. And that's how I feel when I read their text and I read what they've gone through and I look at my life and I, I see how easily distracted I am by the things of this world. I see how easily deterred I am from faithfully, patiently, lovingly expressing the character and nature of God in my life to other people. I'm deeply challenged by the fact that I don't believe I know God as well as I need to, as well as I want to, as well as what he intends for me to know him. 
And so that this prayer of David's, I think, is a very accurate and a very right spot for us to stop and, and wrestle with this morning. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Father, as we wrestle with that truth this morning and this week, I pray, Father, that you would reveal to us those areas in our lives, those points of idolatry where we like the nation of Israel, where we like the the nation of Judah, where we would pursue man-made, controllable, uh, uh, earthly, human-crafted small, lifeless idols, whatever they are. Whether it's the sins that are expressed in, in the book of Galatians or, or if it's the things we've talked about this morning, Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to see them. And God, I, I desire to get a better understanding of who you are. Teach us your ways. Teach us who you are. I'm in wonder that Moses, it appears that Moses, when he sees the back of you, glows. And he would have to, he had to cover his face for the rest of his life when he was with the people. Father, I'd like to know you so well that the world would be uncomfortable with our presence because of we reflect you so well. Oh, that you would make us that church, that you would make us into your people that would reflect your glory, would reflect, reflect your goodness, your grace, your truth into a world that is desperately pursuing idols, that is completely deceived and buying into all of the delusions that are offered by idolatry even today. Father, search our hearts and teach us to know you. Amen. Please stand. Let's worship together.
Jesus, I just pray for every one of us that we can continue to know you more, continue to teach us, and bless, bless us this week, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, everybody, have a great, blessed week.